those of you who are <clears throat> more astute, paying close attention, um, it certainly wasn't very subtle uh, today. John, as he's choosing the songs to, and to lead us in worship, um, you probably caught the theme today. There usually is connected to the passage a very clear theme, and by usually I mean always pass, a theme connected to the passage that we're going to be looking at. And, uh, and so today, very clearly, that we can trust in God in the storm, with that we can look to Him and rely on Him and trust in some level only in Him completely, um, is what we've been led to proclaim today. So I hope you experience that in your heart as well. Um, when I think about um, that first song, or even the last song, it talks about, you know, I, I was uh, in the first service uh, referencing, you know, the first song, we have this beautiful uh, song that's got this really pretty little uh, ocean scene, you know, behind it as we're talking about God taking us through the storm. Um, in the midst of that, I immediately sent a text up to Dave and was like, any way we could have this video ready um, by the time of the sermon, which is totally unfair. And so, of course, it's not possible that fast. But I think you did get it. Um, this is the video that I think of when I think of what could be behind that, uh, that footage of uh, as we're singing about God helping us through the storms. Um, like this is, this is what I picture. This could be the background for, uh, for that. There's, this is a lighthouse. I, there's different ones here, but I think this is the main one that's over off the coast of France and, uh, it gets some pretty good. There's one of my favorites. I think. Anyway. Okay, good. All right. So when we're singing about God taking us through the storms, probably picturing the placid calm water is not what we have in mind. In fact, picturing something like that is what we have in mind. God taking us through like that. This is the main message and the challenge we find ourselves with for everyone today as we hear God's Word here or at home as we're engaging with this is this question. There is a God and He has spoken. Do you know Him? Do you defer to Him? Do you call to Him? Do you trust Him? For some of us, some of those answers are hard. It's hard for us to trust anybody. For some, it's hard to defer to anybody. Um, for some of us, it's, it's hard to even know other people. <coughs> That's who He is. This is the main lesson of prophecy. As Chris Sherrod showed us a few weeks ago, there is a God, and He has spoken. God is God, and He still is, and He ever was sovereign. Nothing catches Him off guard. No storms overwhelm Him. And we're us. They don't overwhelm Him. We may not get what we want in life. We may not even be safe from a life on earth perspective. Things may and will spin out of our control, but they won't spin out of His control. That's, that's where our faithfulness has to be in being faithful to Him, not even necessarily to ourselves. God is God. He alone is God, and He alone knows fully. If there is a God that He has spoken, is there one? This is the question that you have to ask yourself. Is there a God and has He spoken? And if He has, our job, our fundamental job, is obedience. The only real measure of success is obedience. If He has led us and is teaching us, um, I believe in what's called the, the divine command theory of ethics. I think the only actual source of morality is an external divine being who speaks his morality, who communicates his morality to his creation. I don't think as his creation we are competent to come up with moral guidelines on our own. I don't think we have the capacity to do it, and I think every time we do it fails. 
Um, Every time some new atheist tries to come up with an objective, quote, objective standard of morality, I always run, listen to it, I listen to the podcast, I listen to their debate, I read their book, and it takes about 45 seconds to poke holes in it. It just falls apart. It won't work. They won't work. Outside of a divine command, someone greater and grander and more authoritative and more powerful than us telling us, this is right, this is wrong, there's not another way for us to do it. And so again, it's necessary that there is someone out there who has the right perspective and the right understanding And then we who don't have the right understanding, who don't have the right perspective, at least not the complete one, we have to defer to Him. What He says is true and alone can be trustworthy. So I've come up with, in preparation, you know, we were really blessed. Some of you don't know, the reason we were able to go live, I mean, you guys may remember that week. There was a week when an email went out from me like on Monday saying, hey, just remember next Sunday... Not everybody's going to be comfortable shaking hands. So, you know, for some people, be prepared to do a little fist bump. Or, that was Monday's email. Hey, just be prepared. There may be a little bit of a discomfort during meet and greet. And then on Wednesday, an email went out saying, hey, we're not going to do meet and greet. We're just not going to do meet and greet. Um, and, and, and when you show up, like, let's not be shaking hands and do a lot of hugging and that kind of stuff. Just seems like a bad idea. And on Friday, the third email goes out saying, we're not going to be meeting on Sunday. We're just not meeting at all on Sunday that's a crazy week. When you've got a week like that that starts with, hey, just be aware, and, and on Friday, it's, no, we're not gathering. It's pretty amazing. Well, we were able to go live that Sunday. It's because we had planned last year to start going live um, the week of Easter. And so that was just a few weeks later. So John had already bought all this equipment and started talking with a team of people and getting all this ready to go. So we were able to go live. It was a huge blessing. Another blessing like that is we decided, I don't even know when, to teach Daniel this year probably a year ago at least, and, and we start teaching Daniel, and then Daniel starts happening in America, the, the story of we start going like, hey, this whole idea of being in exile, anybody identify with feeling exiled? Like, and suddenly these things are starting to happen. It was a really great provision for us. So part of this idea of teaching through Daniel has been, how do we then survive in a culture that is struggling and maybe falling apart and is certainly less friendly to the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ day by day? So a few weeks ago, I started developing a little a, a part of a sermon, and it's kind of a seven habits type of talk, like the seven habits of people who are highly effective at I don't know, surviving all this time. And so that's a, this is what I'm going to be going through. We start with Daniel being such a great example of this. Um, So in Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, we see this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is a a 60, 70, 80 year time span that Daniel is serving. And what a great example that is under two different empires, multiple different emperors and kings and princes and he has, when we go, well, think of all we're losing though, Chris. I mean, think about the stuff we're being challenged by as a culture and the, the, the conflicting philosophies that are coming in and all the different things we're losing. Daniel helps us with this. Daniel pretty much um, had everything. He and his friends, his people had everything taken from them. Their nation was taken from them. Their homes were, homes were taken from them. Their families were taken from them, and they were royal families. Their temple was taken from them. Their bodies were taken from them. Remember, they were probably turned into eunuchs when they were taken to Babylon. So even that, surgically, their names were taken from them for seven or eight decades. This is how Daniel lived. And he fought hard to not defile himself before God for all of those years. 
Remember, his name means God is my judge. And he took that seriously. He knew that there would come a day when he would talk to God about his life. What a fascinating conversation that must have been, by the way, or will be when judgment comes, that Daniel, Daniel's were probably one of the shortest judgments of everybody, right? Don't you kind of figure? Is he going like, here's all the ways you messed up, and Daniel's list is going to be shorter. I mean, it's there. He's not Jesus Christ. But, but like, well, you got this good. Well, you did this well, and like, wow, this, I mean, your list isn't bad, Daniel. I mean, anyway, so I don't know how that's going to play out, but his, he was serious about this. So we want to look at what are some of the patterns we see in Daniel's life to help us. And so I'm not one on big on lists, but I've got a list of seven for you this morning. They do not um, have the same letters starting in each one. So I'm sorry I have failed you as a Baptist pastor. Um, so here we go. Number one. Number one is a stable, saturated identity in God. This has to be where it starts. It has to start with the fact that this isn't behavioral modification, that you have a firmly and a firm, stable, reliable, saturated identity in God Himself. We are His ambassadors. So keep in mind for a Jewish audience to say, when you read in the very first chapters of Genesis that we are created in the image of God, the idea of image automatically also brings up the concept of an idol. We don't make graven images, the second commandment that God gives to His people. No graven images. Well, there you go. So here's what's wild. Think of how insulting it is to God for us to take our hands and make something out of something that was created, and we make something out of it, and then we worship that thing as an image, an idol to some other being or some other essence or just some human ideal. How ridiculous that is when God is going, I don't want idols, I want images. I made you to be my images. You realize we are the closest thing God has to an idol. The idol for God is us, if there is such a thing. There's no reason for us to make or craft an image of God. God already has created an image of Himself, and that's us. So think how ridiculous it is that we would then worship other images when God's going, no, no, you are the image I created of me. You can get to know me through you, but then worship only me. You don't ever worship an image. That's just silliness. You recognize an image. You get to know a person from the image. You can recognize certain things about them. If I show you a picture of my wife, you don't go, look, there's an image of Ginger. You would say, oh, look, that's Ginger. But you don't mean that. That's not. It's a representation. You can learn some things about her from the picture, but, but you don't really know her. But you can get to know her. This is, this is the process of the transition of us getting to know God even as we know each other. This is an important part of the, <clears throat> the life group type of mentality that we have, which I'm now going to confess on number two, that we are um, faithful, a faithfulness in small things, especially in community. Community brings an extra power for our opportunities to be faithful in small things. Daniel is faithful in small things first, and then he's given the opportunity to be faithful in great things. It's a biblical picture we see over and over again. Be faithful in the small things and then get the opportunity later to be faithful in the big things. This is an this is a, this is a, um, obedience concept. We all want the dare to be great opportunity, but we don't want to get there. Laziness isn't just a lethargy, a lack of willingness to do work. Laziness is the desire to have the results of work without the work. I think I should just get these results, but I shouldn't have to work for them. That's, the, by definition, the character trait of laziness. We don't want that to be true of us. 
We want this magnified as we come alongside each other that we get to see that we can be faithful to these little things to God in the way we relate to and love one another. I was, I was listening to uh, a woman give a speech this last week online, and she's referencing the changes that were happening in her life and how she grew up motherless. And she had come to church for the first couple of times, and, and, she, as she, and her, these are her words and her concepts, she didn't know how to dress like a girl, she says. And so no one said anything about it, but she communicated to someone in the church her discomfort at not knowing how to dress like a girl. And so the, per, the woman in the church was like, well, I don't, I mean, no one cares. You can dress how you want, but if, if you would like, I'll take you shopping. And for this young woman, it meant the world, not that she needed to change the way she dressed or appeared, but that this other woman said, I'll take you shopping. Essentially, I'll be your mom. I'll, I'll have that role in your life, and we all need that. We all need hundreds, maybe thousands of people to represent the paternal and maternal natures of who God is. And we need moms and dads, people who will step up and do that in our lives. We need that. This is something we can do in community. We can be faithful in these small things to speak these kindnesses and to be available and to come alongside each other in small things. This is a Part of our mindset in this church is that every member is a minister. You don't, you don't delegate to the staff things to do that you can do. You do it. You're just as much a minister of the gospel as any one of us. And so this is, this is an important picture that we do this. We come alongside each other and be faithful in these small things. All right. And, and by the way, part of that is to invite, to welcome people. Very few people are offended by being invited to something. Um, it's, it's just a positive. Even if you can't go right? If somebody calls you and invites you to go to the movies, even if you can't go, you're not offended they invited you. You're like, well, I'm so glad they... Cause, but if they didn't invite you, right? I don't know else. I've got, the, I've got the fear of missing out bad. My wife would tell you, it's one of my, it's one of my probably borderline character flaws is it's like, but other people are doing fun things without me. I, w- I want to... That's not right. They need to be inviting me to go do fun things with them, right? That's, that's kind of my natural bent and mindset is to, is to have that. So to remember that reaching out to each other, inviting people. Invite people to church. You can do that now. And, and to small groups and that kind of stuff. We'll come back to that. In a, actually, let me just reference right now. It makes sense to say it here. This is, a, this is important. Why we do life groups at this church is not to manufacture intimacy. We're not trying to program you know, spiritual connectiveness. It's not how that works. What we're trying to do is give you an opportunity to come alongside a smaller group of people in the church and get to know them well enough to develop friendships. Because friendships are the eternal relationship that can be developed here on earth that can last forever and ever and ever. So that you get involved in a life group, the idea here is you're going to go and you're going to go for a semester or for a year or for whatever the the period of time that life group lasts. And and then when it's over, you can leave that life group without splitting the church, right? That's, That's allowed. You're allowed to go do other things. Now, then, to recognize during that time, hopefully, you've made some friends. And they may be friends, maybe not with everybody, but they're friends who you now go and hang out with, and you invite to the movies, and you vacation with them, and you do... Like, that's how lifelong friendships are developed, and that's what we want, is to create that opportunity. We need each other. We are His. The church has we built into it. It's, there's an us-ness to it. Okay, number three, understanding and understanding and respect for authority. This is a vital picture that is portrayed in Daniel over and over again as Daniel has this correct understanding and respect for authority. Conceptually, specifically, he gets it. 
And he, he's, he creates this really beautiful picture for us. Let's look over at the book of Acts chapter 4. This is a quick little premise on the concept of understanding and having respect for authority. The religious leaders have called Peter and John, and they're mad at them. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. This is a gentle little primer on authority. The rule for authority, the Christian doctrine and correct understanding of the ethic for how we engage with authority, is the general one for the whole universe. We ought to always obey the highest authority. That's our rule. If God has spoken, then God's authority stands, and all of the world can gather together and vote against Him and just be wrong together. It won't change the truth, God's moral command or moral instructions or moral obligation or just expression of moral truth. This is the right answer. This is what I've called you to do. Now do it. And we do. And that's what we're called to do is to obey God first. When God hasn't spoken to a specific issue, then we must obey the authorities that are next. For example, the governing authorities of the United States or the governing authorities of the state of Texas or your mom and dad. Or other people, the way that plays out, the leaders in the church. That's how we do this. We follow the highest authority that has spoken into this situation. Any of the military people in the room know that's how this works. We've used that example, right? That if the lower rank gives you an instruction, but the higher rank comes along and belays that order, you don't do it. The higher authority is the one who stands. Their instruction stands, and this is the basic primer. We see the Apostle Paul teach on this very, very clearly in Romans 13 when he tells us to obey the governing authorities. And and lest we get confused about that and go, yeah, but he didn't know what it was like to have the kind of presidents we have in the United States. You're, You're right, he didn't. He never would have known anything like that much freedom. He had people like Nero, not as president, but as emperor. And we've had some rough ones, but nothing like him, not Not yet. Um, all right, so for us to say, this is, we have to understand this. Don't we see this all through Daniel? Daniel deals with great kings and leaders like, like, like Nebuchadnezzar and total morons like Belshazzar and then people who are new at this and kind of confused and don't seem to know what's going on always like Darius the Mede. And so we see Daniel engage with all of them and what we see him do is respond with the proper respect and deference to all these authorities, even though they're pagans. It's a great lesson for us to learn how to live this out. Number four, seek God's mercy and give thanks. So a seeking of God's mercy and giving thanks is a vital part of living through tough times. And this is what we're challenging us to do. Daniel did this so well. He's always seeking God's mercy. He's always praying to God for guidance. He is thanking God and giving God credit left and right. It happens all through the book in his prayers. And I think we do the same thing. And so in this moment, even as I'm telling them to you, I I am asking God for mercy for our nation. We face an incredibly contentious election. We faced others before. This one feels special. Maybe it's not, but it certainly feels more contentious than any in my lifetime, that's for sure. Maybe others have experienced this similar before. We've seen tough things before. And my prayer is for God's mercy for our nation as we face this. It's, it's going to be rough. And I find myself trying to trust in my understanding. Well, what happens if this happens? And what happens if that happens? And what happens if both of those happen? And what happens if this? And, and, what, and instead, although there's a proper place 
for us to seek these other things and for us to look to other things. But as Christians, we have this great ability that God has given us to test everything and keep that which is right. And so we get to do that with everything. We get to say, so here's, here's this group over here, and we go, okay, what's right about what they're saying? What's true? You know what? What's noble? What's worthy of compliment? And we go, well, you know what? I'll keep that. I'll think about that. The rest, I toss. And we get to do that, and by the way, must do that with every human philosophy that comes up. Then we go, free market capitalism. Well, as Christians, how do we evaluate that? There's, there's good things. There's not good things. And as Christians, we get to do that. We don't have to go like, no, no, I have to be all in on this worldly philosophy. No, you don't. As Christians, we're required not to be. We test all the spirits. We test it all. We keep what is good. What about Marxism? Well, that's always bad, right? Well, I don't know. The early church practiced some commune living. There's some, maybe there's something positive we can learn conceptually through that. And then throw out the rest. We get to do that. We are not beholden to any human philosophy. Not to any human movement, not to any human anything, we can say, I'm going to test what's good about this, and I'm going to keep what's good. So I'm a psychologist. Let me tell you, there's lots of not good in the psychological sciences. And so I have to test every little bit that comes along. Man, I had to study Freud for like a whole year. You study a guy like Freud, and you're doing a whole lot of not, 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 not. But here's the deal. If something's true, it's true. All truth is God's truth. And so if a guy like Freud is the one who, comes, who discovers something and it's true, it's still true even though he discovered it, right? He doesn't turn it not true because it's him. You go, okay, well, that's good. I'll keep that. Toss, 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 toss. Oh, oh there's another one. I'm keeping that. Toss, toss. And you do a lot of that. I, did, I studied Freud at seminary. That's a, let me just tell you, that's a fascinating experience. So to go like, oh gosh. And so this is, a, this is what we get to do as Christians, and we get to do that, and we get to seek God's mercy through all of this and His guidance and His leadership because we're trusting in Him. And so we would ask right now for God's mercy for our nation in the level of division and contention that we see. I'm asking God's mercy on the people who are facing fires in California and fires in inner cities for injustice and for a new unity of America again. This is we're in a tough spot, and I'm asking for God in His mercy to bring something, bring a new unity for us as a culture. Mercy in this quarantine and the disease that has caused it, and for divorce and depression and suicide, which have increased greatly during the last few months, even over the norm. And, and the national debt, which has become an immoral number that, that we can't even wrap our brains around and will haunt generations down the road. And and, and for soldiers who are in crisis and coming back from combat and not getting the help that they need and the coverage as the church, how do we wrap ourselves around these as expressions of God's mercy, but we're asking for His mercy. We're asking for your mercy, Father, as we face these things as a, as a people and as a culture and as your church. And as we see God res resolve some of these things for us, if He chooses to do so, then we give thanks. Again, in that example, five... Number five is a checked pride. This is a big deal. There's a violence in following Jesus. There's an overthrowing. Your kingdom just fell. When you begin to follow Jesus, all of a sudden you don't get to be the king of your life and the Lord of your life. Everyone doesn't have to respond to your expectations and demands. They're no longer responsible for your emotional well-being. That's between you and God now. And it's His responsibility 
to, to or not provide for your emotional well-being. He's not obligated to do that. He puts us in tough times where we struggle and we face turmoil and we face fear, and sometimes we need to, and we face these challenges, and yet in the midst of it, He does not ever abandon us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. This is why can't we serve well? Because sometimes these things don't further our own kingdoms, and so we don't want to do them. And that's an unchecked pride. This is, this is I mean, brand new. Just Paul sent me this text last night with a link to a pastor. A, there's a pastor in Dallas who has stepped down, a well-known one who has stepped from the pulpit for a while. He's not retiring or anything. But automatically when you read that, you go, oh, sin in his life. And there is. He declares it. There's sin in my life. And you go, uh-oh, sexual sin. Nope. Not as far as we know. Pride. He has stepped down from the pulpit for a period of time, not, he says, not, not as a reward for 20-something years of good service, but as an opportunity to get away so that he can repent of his pride. He even talks about, how, in the article, he talks about how this, that there have been people telling him this for a while, and, you know, huge surprise for someone who deals with pride. He didn't listen, right? Welcome, welcome to us, Right? And so this is not judgmental. I will tell you, though I've only met the man once or twice, I am proud of the representation of a pastor who, who says, I have now accepted what I am being told by people who love me, that though I've resisted for a long time this, this, the truth is, I'm so overcome with pride, I have no busy preaching. And instead, I need to be getting alone with God so that He can put me in a position to repent in new ways. It was fascinating because we've heard him teach many times as a staff and regularly while he's teaching, we would kind of look at each other like, I don't know if that's the right, if you should say that that way. Like, that sounded really proud, really prideful. And so what an amazing thing, that proof that God speaks into our lives, no matter how proud we are, He can get to us. A checked pride. Isn't Daniel like the most amazing example of the checked pride? We see it over and over again as he faces this. Number six, and maintained integrity. Daniel 6.5, remember, remember we memorized and we're working to memorize that, Dan- that Daniel 6-5 passage that the men had said, we will never find anything, any claim against this man, Daniel, unless it has to do with the commands of his God. This is the idea, integrity, we have a whole sermon on it, you can go back and listen to it, is the idea that you should not be able to be caught doing other things wrong, but you should be able to be caught obeying God's commands. It's a, it's a great picture. Number seven, Remember being aware of God's sovereignty. This is kind of the beginning and the ending. The ascendant, supreme, ultimate Lord, God, King is still all those things. Our role in the power of the Christian worldview that God has proclaimed for us. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it looks like to follow me. You are strangers in a strange land. You're citizens of another place. You have a sovereign And He is who we defer to. We live out this life as ambassadors, as His representatives. So, we see these over and over again in these six simple chapters in Daniel that we've seen. These principles laid out. So, if you seem to be struggling in some way in this era of American history, in this season of church in the West, my guess is at least one of these you're bucking against. You're resisting. At least one of these, you're not looking to God's leadership. So I would challenge you with these seven habits of people who make it through the crisis, so to speak, that Daniel has 
with us. Um, I hope you're able to engage each other with these. The prophetic message, there is a God and He has And so the proof of that is now we look into Daniel chapter 7 and we see the vital nature of what plays out um, in Daniel's life. And so we'll start verse 1 in the first Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay down in his bed. And then he read on the dream and he told them of the matter. So a reminder, we're back in ap- apocryphal literature. We talked about that a couple of times. That's just another way of saying things are about to get weird. Things are about to get weird here in the Bible. This is apocryphal. It's a way God is, uh, is, is opening up the veil, which is often confusing people and they see things, but most importantly, they, they often have a hard time describing and we're going to run into that here in a minute. But we see this through Scripture. Um, for the Apostle Paul and Isaiah, we see Peter face it. There are whole books of Revelation that is essentially apocryphal literature. This poetic, imaginative symbols that are meant to teach us something, help us to recognize something, at least when we see it. Design patterns, symbols that are used over and over again through Scripture. A couple of months ago, uh, John referenced the design pattern of trees. In Scripture and the importance of that, there are hundreds of these. the images that we see of beasts and oceans and animals and numbers and, and stuff like that, that that all communicate something about what God is doing and how He communicates that pulls back the veil. And sometimes it happens through a dream. It often happens through a dream in the Bible. Today, still dream dreams that seem to be God pulling back the veil for them to reveal to them His message for them as an individual. He did it with Joseph, the one with many color, with the coat of many colors, and Jacob. And there's a Midianite soldier who has a dream that Gideon gets to hear about. And, and the other Joseph, the, the kind of stepfather for Jesus while he's on earth, he has dreams that God pulls back the veil. And here, of course, Daniel. So we're taken back in time from Daniel chapter 6, about 17 years. Daniel is having this dream while he's under the less than stellar rule of the prince king Belshazzar. Daniel was relatively apparently unknown or at least not respected by this king. Remember when, when the writing appears on the wall, the Belshazzar doesn't even know to go to Daniel or ask about Daniel. Somebody else has to tell him. So this is an interesting idea. Belshazzar was the last ruler in the Babylonian empire. And so Daniel has this dream and apparently he has a dream journal. He pulls out his little scroll and he writes down what he experienced in his dream. <coughs> so first, before the interpretations... I want us to have the opportunity to kind of embrace the imagery. So I'll give you the image, and then we'll look at some different concepts here. Daniel declared, he spoke it, he wrote it, I saw in my vision at night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So again, Daniel's asleep, and he has a dream, and in the dream, there's a great sea in his dream. And these four great winds begin to rise up. This isn't one hurricane. We've seen that. This isn't even two hurricanes. We've even seen that. This is four hurricanes come together. So you should imagine this sea, this dark, massive sea that Daniel is dreaming about is being whipped into a giant storm. And in the midst of this giant storm, as these winds are coming, four creatures begin to rise up out of this sea. You can imagine them shaking off their fur as they're getting up out of the sea and, and walking towards the land. And for Daniel, this is a horrific image. Part of it's because of the terrifying nature of the creatures, as you see, and just the emotion of all of it. 
And again, it's in the midst of a dream, and dreams have weird effect on us for sure. So the four winds of heaven, let's talk about that image here. Wind is is strongly connected to insight and truth and wisdom in Scripture. The breath of God, as you'll see in a second, is one of the names of God's own spirit. Uh, It's a whole truth. All four winds. A full picture. I think think a a really good way to summarize the four winds is this. It is the complete engagement of God on earth in a moment. In this moment, God is all in. He's fully engaged. All four winds are there. His personality expressed there. Let's look at a few of them. Ezekiel 37.9, And then He said to me, Ezekiel, another apocryphal passage, He said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. This is the passage of the dry bones brought to life. Another beautiful apocryphal picture that has ripple effects even in our lives. You ever felt like a pile of dry bones? You ever experienced that and realizing that this is a God we serve who takes a valley full of dry bones and He gives them flesh and brings them back to life. It's a beautiful picture, as horrific as it is. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 6 verse 5, And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth. So here they're even embodied, anthropomorphized. They're given a, this picture of there being an activity that they involve with a, person, a personage like messengers or angels. Matthew 24, 31, this is Jesus teaching himself, um, warning about the coming calamity on Jerusalem. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, one from each end of heaven to the other. So here the picture again, the complete picture, all of the believers gathered as God acts. Revelation 7.1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. So here you have Daniel all the way to Revelation. We have this idea of these four winds and how they represent God's engagement. And then a great sea. They're hitting a great sea. The great sea almost always and maybe always in apocryphal literature represents the mass of humanity, the multitudes of mankind. And so when we have this image, this massive sea that has been stirred up, the multitudes have been stirred up by God's engagement, by God's presence, by God's message, and four great beasts began to rise up. Here they are. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. So let's take a second and look at this word, like. The first was like a lion. Now, we're going to look at some guesswork representations in a minute, but notice that what you're going to see when you see art of this is a lion. It's not like a lion. It is a lion. So what's going on here? Why is it like a lion? Well, anytime anytime you have God pull back the veil, especially in a dream, we're kind of stuck with this language. So the other day I had a dream, I told the first service, I had a dream about Ginger and I fighting about something. Now, it wasn't actually Ginger fighting, and it wasn't actually me exactly, it was, but it was us fighting about, so it was, it was kind of like us fighting about something that we might fight about, but, but it wasn't actually us in the dream, it was somebody else. I know because I was watching us, not us, kind of fighting with each other. And, and very quickly the language begins, it's, it's true that it happened, and I'm honestly trying to depict it for you, 
it's that hard to depict it, right? We all know this. When you have a dream and, and you're trying to describe it, you're like, well, it was kind of like this, but it also kind of wasn't like that. And here you have Daniel saying it was like a lion. Well, in what way was it like a lion? It was just like a lion. It was like a lion, but it had wings like an eagle. Well, that's not like a lion at all. Lions don't have wings like eagles. Exactly. That's what I'm telling you. It was kind of like a lion, but it had wings. And so, and so it's, it's that conversation. We see, we see John the Baptist do it. When Jesus is baptized, what is always painted, if you watch the paintings of Jesus' baptism, what is always painted in the air above his head? A dove. Why? Because John says that he saw the Spirit descend like a dove, though. It's not as a dove. It's not a dove. I saw a dove. It's, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove. Well, in what way? Did it flutter like a dove? Or was it kind of white-colored or gray-colored like a dove? Or was it, I don't know, it was like a dove, right? That's the idea. That's an apocryphal moment. God pulls back the veil for John the Baptist, just a tiny peak as the Spirit descends like a dove. And when we face apocryphal experiences, we end up describing it, well, it was kind of like this. I mean, it wasn't, but it kind of was. And that's what we're dealing with with Daniel. It was like a lion. So he's doing his best to give us a picture now, when you see this, you automatically, so you have a lion and an eagle's wing. So immediately, lions and eagles, two pictures of, of what? Right? What, what are they? Strength, power, grandeur, right? These aren't hummingbird wings, they're eagle's wings, right? You imagine a, a massive creature flying way up in the sky. The grandeur and glory of the eagle's wings as it moves and conquers around the earth like a lion would. Well, so it's, a, and by the way, lions aren't cute zoo animals. They are for us. We have a very hard time with some of this imagery because when we see these animals, we're safe at the time. If you can imagine just for a second, I told you that when I were, we were doing Daniels in the lion's den, I had tried to communicate with a group to see if there was any way I could like be in a lion's cage. Actually, what I wrote in my notes, I shouldn't say this, but what I wrote in the notes was, have a lion on stage, question mark. I know, <laughs> that would, my, my wife would have left the room. If I'd surprised her with it, it would have been bad. Um, she has a phobia of them, and so it would be, it would be much, much worse. That, but can you imagine if suddenly, if at that point I had said, um, yeah, let me introduce you to my friend, and out the back comes in somebody trailing a, a lion on a leash. Can you imagine the effect? Everybody would have been like, yeah. I mean, the breath would have gone out of the room it would, as this massive creature comes up on that. And that doesn't even come close if you imagine the idea of living in a country that has lions that roam wild and being caught by one after dark is not good news. It's a terrifying image. What's scarier, what's scarier than a lion? A lion that flies. That's bad news. I heard a preacher reference that this week. I was like, dang, that's truth right there. I told Elizabeth this morning, what's scarier than a spider? A spider with wings, right? That's the only thing that would be more creepy. So, so this is a... Uh, this is not a cute, cute zoo animal. So we picture this grand beast of great power and influence and movement around the world, a conqueror who then begins to shed itself or its, its violent life is begin to be shed of it. And, and so now it's starting to look, it, it, it looks more like a lion and then it doesn't even look like a lion. Now it's standing on two legs and now it's given the mind of a man. Now, commentaries are going to reference this, the significance of this. This isn't all that subtle. Who do you think of when you think about this phrase? Or what do you think of that he was given the mind of a man? Any, any moments come to mind? Like Nebuchadnezzar a few chapters ago? 
What happened when Nebuchadnezzar in his pride declared himself kind of the author and perfecter of his own kingdom? What happened? What did God do? He gave him, quote, the mind of a beast. So here, instead of being given the mind of a beast, the lion is given the mind of a man. And almost certainly what you're dealing with here, and pretty much everyone agrees, that this is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire being represented. He conquered, they conquered, and then he moves into Babylon, into his capital city, and then he's, he stops being the conquering beast, and his wings fall off, and he takes a stance like a man, and now he begins to live like a human, and he, he has social construction, and they, and they build into the city, and there's civic improvements, and now he's acting like a man. And all this grandeur is there, but it takes on a different form. So most people. So here's some imagery that what Daniel might have experienced. We have this. So I'd love to, there's an artist who does some of these that are really cool. That's a great picture to show the, the massive power and grandeur communicated by what it would be like to see this in a dream. Now, the Babylonians had a lot of imagery of lions. In fact, all over Babylon are, are lion symbols like this. They had a lot of respect and fear for lions. And in Darius, the Persian king, in his throne room, he actually had a picture of a lion with wings um, on his wall. So this is not, a, not an impossible concept to their mind. The idea of a lion with wings would have represented, and by the way, the hind legs of an eagle that, and the head of a ram, they would have this idea of bringing these images together to create a picture as common to that era. Then we have the second beast. <clears throat> a little bit behind. I'll have to rush through this a little bit. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, and it raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to rise and devour much flesh. So here, again, like a bear, two-sided, this imagery two-sided, kind of lopsided, one side stronger than the other, has three ribs or maybe three tusks, depending on some different disagreement in the Hebrew, I mean the Aramaic there. No one knows for sure, but the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the coming together of two kingdoms into kind of one allied kingdom, but the Persians were always much more powerful and stronger than the Medes, and eventually the Medes were just absorbed into the Persian kingdom. They conquered three kings, three great empires in their path to glory. They had the Lydians. Um, which is a, a great story of Cyrus forming a square with his army and putting camels on the outside of his army because he had recognized, he had noticed that the Lydian horses were afraid of the camels for some reason. So though they outnumbered two to one, they ended up winning because he had these, the Lydian cavalry couldn't charge because the horses would shy away from the camels every time and they were able to defeat them. Then we have the defeat, of course, of the Babylonians, which we've read about but understand had not happened when Daniel had this dream. So the writing on the wall is going to happen a year or two after this dream when actually the Medo-Persians are going to conquer Babylon. And then in 525 B.C., um, <clears throat> the, the Persian king is going to conquer the Pharaoh of Egypt. Um, 50,000, it's, it's a horrific story. Like There's all kinds of things I cannot tell from this um, in a church service. Um, all types of horror and just, just gross violence and brutality, again, like a giant bear just wading through things, destroying it and dragging out body parts. But in this, in the, you have this great little story I thought you would appreciate. Um, according to one historian, I don't know if you've heard this, John, but according to one historian, uh, when, when the uh, Persians actually had to take the city of Memphis, um, they had discovered that the Egyptians um, thought of the cats as sacred animals and would not harm a cat. And so the Persian army charged into Memphis carrying cats in their non-weapon hand out in front of them 
so that the Egyptians would be confused and not sure what they were supposed to do. Um, and that apparently worked. So how about that? That's a good story, huh? So especially for all the non-cat lovers in the room. There's actually a painting of them launching cats and catapults into Memphis, just so you'll know. So, <clears throat> um, so here we have a couple of potential pictures here maybe as well of a giant bear, a terrifying predatory creature, lumbering and destructive, which is a great description of the Persians um, with the three ribs in its mouth. And then we also discovered a few weeks ago, if you listened to the podcast, that Paul grew up playing with playing cards, these baseball cards that are Bible baseball cards, and we found the image of the bear that he would have played with as a kid. This explains so much about Paul. I just can't even tell you um, as a therapist. So um, here we go in chapter, in verse 6. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Again, like a leopard, a predatory animal known thought of for its speed and its cunning and its intelligence. And so you have this first, this animal who is known for and thought of as, a, as an animal of speed and cunning, and then you put four wings. Notice not of an eagle, of a bird. This isn't grandeur, this is speed, multiplied by speed, multiplied by speed. What happened was probably, and I, th- I think this is a representation of the Greek empire, which by the way did not exist yet at the time that Daniel had this dream, the Greek empire. And here's what's wild, speed times speed, if that doesn't describe Alexander the Great and his, and his army, a, a relatively small army that conquered essentially the entire known world in only 12 years. The entire world. Remember, there's no armored transports, there's no trains. They marched from culture to culture and conquered it one after another. They were, quote, given dominion. This was the era of the phalanx. The Macedonians, the Greeks, had developed a new technological advance, a a military formation. It's the one I've named my um, men's ministry after. Interlocking shields and spears, well-trained soldiers who knew how to fight. And they would face armies, no kidding, 10 times, 20 times, 30 times their size and would decimate the other army. There are battles that the the Greeks fought with the phalanx where you would have 10,000 Greeks and 150,000 or 250,000 opponents. And at the end of the day, a couple of hundred Greeks would be dead and 60,000 of their opponents would be dead. The bloodletting was incredible. The dominion was unbeatable. One of my favorite uh, historic authors said that in its heyday, the phalanx was invincible. And here's the problem. Everyone, every culture is facing it for the first time. They've never seen this before. And they run into a few thousand Greeks, and the next thing you know, they're all dead. And there's, how do you adapt your culture to this coming invasion? You've got, at the most, 12 years to change your entire culture. It's not possible. And so the Greeks conquered with massive levels of speed and cunning the whole planet, essentially. They were invincible. Here's a beautiful piece of art that shows, I think, an image. Again, would it look like this? I don't know. But conceptually, the terror of that, and by the way, when Alexander, who died as a young man when he died, four, general, four of his generals took over and continued to lead the Greek empire, probably the four heads here, no one knows for sure. We'll see each of these, as we continue to look, they represent a kingdom. The, the angel is going to come say, they're not going to give detail, but say, each of these represents a king and a kingdom. They exemplify certain traits of these cultures and kingdoms, character of habit and of both. And keep in mind, once again... Only Nebuchadnezzar was a king at the time that Daniel had this dream, the next two. And then things are going to go from weird to weirder, from strange to much stranger as we get to the fourth beast next week. 
Now, do you have the picture of all four beasts? I think that's in there somewhere up in front of the other pictures of the beasts um, together. Um, but it has, you have the shadowy being in the back that's going to come up, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this one, we're going to look at the ripple effect, the birth pangs that this beast represents as he is... He has existed and has existed multiple times and is going to exist again. And, and this image of this, this great beast and, and what it all it represents. So we're going to take probably a whole Sunday on just that creature. Um, it's amazing to look at this. But again, though even Daniel is terrified by all of this, we need to find peace in this. And I want to pray peace over us. I want to pray peace over the fact that even with these types of creatures and these crazy images, that the truth is, all of them are responding to and fall under the sovereign authority of Almighty God. None of them came into power on their own. God has brought them out of the sea. He has brought these creatures out. And with all of the challenges we face with them, when we face these challenges, just like Daniel was going to, just like the human race did in empire after empire, we can fall back and trust the God who's going to have a kingdom that won't end. We'll get there soon. So stand with me if you will. If you've already been through the kind of welcome home process, you've had some conversations with Lance or whatever, um, and others, we'd love for you to come and join with us if you're ready to join this dysfunctional family and um, as we do our best with all of this. And, uh, and so I want to pray God's blessing of peace over us as we rely on Him and remember that He is God. He has spoken. So pray with me, please. Father, we're so grateful for Your goodness and we're so grateful for who You are and, and what You are. And, how you've revealed yourself to us, how you've revealed the truth of your divine power, of your divine nature, that we get to, in the midst of a world that is crazy, that, that, that the imagery used to describe the world has to be strange and even horrific at times. And yet, in the midst of that, you are never caught off guard. None of this ever frightens you. And that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust in you and not to lean on our own understanding. Or that would lead us to despair and pain and depression and discouragement and even hopelessness. But instead, Lord, I pray that we will keep our minds and our eyes focused on you. I pray that we would remember that you are the one who carries us through. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us and guide us with how we need to find rest in you. And then once rested there, then we can figure out how to test the spirits and keep that which is good. Trust you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We ask for your best in all things and nothing else. Amen.